0: Experts Only. I'm your host, John Powers. I'm the co-founder of Clean Capital and serve as President Obama's Chief Sustainability Officer. On this podcast, we explore solutions to climate change by talking to industry leaders about the intersection of energy, innovation, and finance. You can get more episodes at cleancapital.com. Roger Valentine, thanks so much for joining us again here at Experts Only. Thanks, John. Good to be here. And for our listeners, there's a previous podcast that I did with Roger, one of the first ones where Roger talks about his amazing experience in the space, helping to really form the conversation around climate over the last few decades. So you can listen to that to get a better sense of Roger himself. But today we're going to talk about the report and the work that the report's trying to affect. So, Roger, for a second, just to set the stage, can you talk about the work you do at Green Strategies?
1: Yeah. So I guess we'll start with kind of, you know, our theory, um, which, you know, we... I founded this firm in 2001 um, and uh, with the with the idea that um, as much as we desperately needed impactful public policy to, to deal with the climate problem, um, progress was not being made there at a pace that was kind of okay okay for me. Um, so I, I looked around, where else can I have an impact and um, what, what I saw coming was beginning to see back then. And, and now I think it's kind of been more or less proven is that if we could align the efficiencies, the capital, uh, the motivations of private sector actors to pursue business strategies uh, that are consistent with or helpful toward decarbonization and addressing um, broader environmental challenges uh, that we actually could tap into an an, an entirely additional force beyond the government to drive positive change. Now, um, that theory, which we call climate capitalism, uh, I think has been borne out to a certain extent, certainly you know, fits and fits and starts, but I think it's fair to say today, whether you're talking about climate or sustainability more broadly, and I'll, 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 one could say ESG, but that's just gotten kind of a bit of a hairy term lately. So I don't even need to go there. But, so, just think about sustainability. Bottom line point is is that for a company to really maximize its competitive advantage, <clears throat> be more profitable, attract the most talent uh drive the most innovation and i don't care what sector companies that it could be retail it could be industrial financial it doesn't matter uh, yeah. and we, we, we're companies across the sector that if you incorporate these major trends around climate change sustainability particularly with the uh, shifting of the center of power of of consumers and, and shareholders and uh, uh towards you know millennials and then gen z's if you're trying to run your company in a way that is inconsistent with and seen as opposing to these trends towards decarbonization and apply and to social equity and other things which were which we just don't happen to really focus on we focus on the environmental side but that, that's not a smart way to to run your business attract talent um, right yeah and, and i think that's really kind of become true so what 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 we help companies and financial institutions uh, and companies of all sizes and sectors um, do is is how to to optimize their strategies and then their execution against those strategies in ways that are simultaneously creating business value but also uh, environmental benefits in general and decarbonization impacts uh, in particular.
0: Yeah, I mean, the evolution of this space, like since you started Green Strategies in 2001, right? People weren't even thinking about this for they're just buying their power from the utilities at the time. You know, that first decade, there was some development of strategies. The last decade has been, you know, not to use the overly used hockey stick term, but... Now major buyers are, have their own electricity or help, uh, you know energy procurement shops and the, the, okay. they, yeah the, the chief sustainability role is a serious role now a lot of corporations like the dynamic changes has been significant and, and what's interesting to me about the report which I can to here is you know really you guys are arguing about how to now take this to the next level right That's exactly the right. playing field set the markets mature you know this is, the data has been. Uh, is out there long enough that we can understand it and how do we take this to the next level? So as we get into that, you know, you guys worked with uh, an organization, the Clean Air Task Force, to put this together and partners at the Northbridge Group. What what brought together this sort of cohort to put this report together?
1: Yeah, I- interesting. Uh, the origin story here, which goes back five years. Um, uh, Armin Cohen, who's the founder of the Clean Air Task Force and just one of the more, one of the smarter uh, and, and I think um, some pragmatic NGO leaders uh, out there, um, he and and I had both been following very closely the growing and now really predominant body of literature um, that says if you want to get to a zero carbon electricity sector. Uh, On a timeline, you know, even close to what science tells us we need to do that the focus needs to be on both uh, intermittent or variable uh, renewable energy like wind and solar, but also on what we call firm and dispatchable um, sources uh, uh, that are also zero carbon. So. The reason being that, uh, and and the the theory being, which sounds simple, but we weren't really following this basic principle, which is a zero carbon grid means a grid that is zero carbon in all places at all times. Right. Uh, And we're not building wind and solar in all places. And wind and solar does not generate at all times. So it's a fairly simple proposition, but one that you know, as we'll as we'll talk about, um, uh, it was actually is actually quite contrary to the system that's been set up, presumably to encourage decarbonization in electricity sector for the past fifteen or 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 twenty years. So Armin, you know, came to me and said, you know, I'm out there, you know, testifying before state legislatures and pushing for at the federal level for a clean energy standard as opposed to a renewable energy standard where we. You know, have these policies that that encourage or or, or mandate the full fleet uh, of clean generation, be it wind, solar, hydropower, geothermal, biomass, nuclear, uh, fossil with carbon capture, whatever it is. So that's that was his really kind of policy focus. And then he came to me and said, you know, you're you work in this private sector stuff, and you know, I'm out here kind of trying to convince policymakers that we need to have a different approach. And meanwhile, all these big buyers, the Googles and the Walmarts and the Facebooks and and all these guys, um, all they're doing is buying wind and solar. So don't we need to bring that kind of same message to that side of the equation, which he said is not my world, it's yours, um, and really look at how we take what's been happening in the private sector, which over the past 15 years has been quite impactful. And we're roughly... You know, roughly a third of the wind and solar that's been deployed in the United States in the last 15 years happened because of private buyer demand. Right. Um, And so it was very effective uh, in adding that capacity. Um, So how do we then, you know, Armin said to me, how do we then kind of bring a new approach, as I'm trying to do on the policy side, to the private sector side? And that was the origin of this. Uh, and that's how the project got started.
0: Excellent. So um, you know, I want to get into the corporate demand side, because as you said, it, it's really, it's been a major driver, especially when, you know, we were in the um, uh, last, the previous four years of administration, when climate wasn't a national conversation at all, uh, it was that demand that was continued to drive change yeah. at the state level <laughs> and move things forward. You know, one of the things you guys talk about is that the the pace of the electrical se- the electric sector's its decarbonization is well behind the pace we need to achieve uh, zero carbon. And you know, how does you sort of laid out how this paper looks to address it? Um, it seems like the corporate role in that is going to be uh, more and more important over time. Uh, I, I think some of the federal policies are coming in place now, of course, of so the IRA. The state policies have come in place. Um, you know, over the course of time, it will continue to emerge. But one of the things you guys really dive into, which I think folks may have a good sense of, but don't really understand, is the greenhouse gas protocol and the role that plays in helping corporations understand how to procure and hit their goals, right? Yes. So for for folks, can you you just walk through a little bit of like, honestly, greenhouse gas protocol one-on-one, like how is it established? You know, what's the difference between one, two, and three emissions for folks? Yeah. So,
1: you know, 20 plus, more than two decades ago, the World Resources Institute, the World Business Council on Sustainable Development, you know, and others came up with this idea, which was brilliant, which is why don't we develop a voluntary system of consistent Rules by which, in this case, we're talking about companies. I mean, the, the protocol applies to governments and so we're talking about companies um, that tells a company how to calculate their carbon footprint. And the theory was that maybe companies will actually start doing it. Uh, and it worked and we saw kind of a nonlinear, you know, increase in in companies kind of voluntarily then creating what we call inventories, which is their carbon footprint, calculating their carbon, carbon footprint. And just, you know, what I love about the, the power of the private sector is, you know, and this is kind of the theory of, of, of climate capitalism is that the power of competition is really, really strong. And if now companies are competing like, well, wait a second, Target says Walmart is publishing this carbon footprint well that probably means we need to do it you know and then Cole says wait I don't know if this is the right order but I can say well right, yeah, right, okay no. can right, right. you kind of get you kind of get this, this this race to the top and that's very very powerful uh, so so what how, what are a, a, you know, a company's uh, emissions? so roughly Emissions are kind of put into three categories: scope one, scope two, and scope three. Scope one are just the direct emissions from things that the company owns. Okay, so if you've got a boiler in one of your buildings that you own, and you know, a little smokestack up top, the carbon dioxide coming out of the smokestack, that's your scope one emission. You own it. Or if you're a company, your corporate jet, which you own. Right emissions from those are scope one emissions. Okay, scope two emissions, which is what we're really talking about today, are the emissions associated with the energy that you buy. Right, and this would apply to a household. Right, the powers household um, buys electricity from your local utility, and there's no smokestack on your house, but there is one from the natural gas plant, or you know, God forbid, the coal plant, or whatever it is, down the road or 200 miles away that's generating that electricity that's coming to you. So the portion that you consume, you can trace back to the source and that portion of those emissions at the source, that's your scope to it. Right, so let's
0: play this example, out just because it's so important to the report. So then we, as a family, buy community buy into a community solar project, yep. right? So the community solar project. So that, that affects our scope two emissions. We're able to claim less carbon provided within our scope two household. Uh, because we we're to do that. And a company could do the same thing. They could buy right. solar that doesn't have to be set on the rooftops. Um, they can buy it from another facility and then offset their scope too.
1: So that's essentially right. So let's go back to companies for a second. And I want to add another layer to this, which is then what happened after the greenhouse gas protocol, which is kind of the rule book. Okay? It's the rule book. Right. But again, it doesn't require anybody to do anything. It just as if you're going to calculate your carbon footprint, follow these rules. What then built up uh, beyond that, what we call the kind of, we talk about the rules and rewards ecosystem that governs corporate decision-making around buying energy, buying electricity, right? The rules, protocol, the rewards ecosystem are the kind of third-party leadership recognition programs where companies are kind of ranked and get a score. There's the carbon exposure project, CDP, which awards companies you know, bonus points for how much do you reduce your scope to here. There's something called the science-based target initiative, right, which is becoming wildly popular, and companies are all signing up to follow a set of rules that says, okay, we're going to set a target for reducing our footprint that's consistent with the, the science, what science tells us the decarbonization timeline for the whole economy means. So each company then develops this strategy uh, that the the SBTI then either says, Yep, that's good or it's not. You got to do a little more here, or there, or otherwise. And that then becomes a major driver of their behavior going forward. It's like, Well, we got to meet our target. And we got to meet our target because we want to be recognized as having a target, meeting a target. And, um, and we're going to do that by using the rules that allow us to calculate what our footprint is and the reductions that we make. So we can then say, look, we did it, and we get the credit for that, all good. And now, by the way, this, this is becoming even more critical to companies as the whole ESG investor world, as imperfect and as it is, There's more and more investors who are asking questions like tell us about how you're addressing your carbon footprint show us the results right so this is all becoming quite a big deal uh for companies but this then brings us back to kind of the origin story of this project so we looked at that and said okay this is really good news and there more and more of these buyers big companies and now smaller companies and just the, the 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 economic power behind these electricity buyers grows uh, constantly. And now they're actually trying to do something uh, for decarbonization of their scope too. But they're following these rules. So then we took a hard look at the rules right. and said, are they optimized to actually drive carbon emission reductions? And w- what we found is that they are not. And Let me, without getting too geeky, it it goes to you can get a little geeky.
0: This is really important because this is like right. the report cards out there. It's not having the having a good effect, but not the optimization effect that we want.
1: Correct. So, so how do we
0: how do we maximize? It?
1: Right. So um, the key to all this was the development of what we call renewable energy credits or RECs. Right. Okay. which originally were were, were certi- their certificates um, you can just think of pieces of paper okay, that um, represent or show that there was a megawatt hour which is a lot of you know big production of energy over a one hour period that had zero emissions largely because it came from wind or solar project and for right. every hour that those projects produce um, uh, zero carbon energy, it produces a REC. Now, originally this was used in kind of state laws that required utilities or, or electric retailers to have a certain percentage of their electricity be renewable. How did they prove that at the end of the year that they met their percentage, they can go to the state and say, we complied. They come in with a stack of RECs. Right. It meets that amount. Okay. Now, when we talk about the private sector demand, we have what we call voluntary market recs, not recs that are used for these compliance programs, largely at the state level. But for a private buyer to say, look, I used, I consumed a megawatt hour of clean energy. Well, how do you how how, how are you showing me you did that? I got this wreck. Okay, right. and the way Scope Two, the Scope Two rules are written, is let's just imagine you you you, you have a company in in one location. You've got one facility in one location, um, and whatever the mix of clean and dirty generation that's servicing your facility, those are the emissions associated. You, you determine the emissions associated with your electricity use by saying how much electricity did you pull from that grid region, and how dirty was that grid region, and then you just kind of multiply what we call the emissions factor of that energy you were using by the total amount that you used, and you come up with a number. Here's here's the here are the greenhouse gas emissions associated with our electricity use. Okay, that's how you would do it. Put aside Rex for a second. That's how you would calculate your sky right. two Now, what scope two accounting allows you to do is you take that number of just the actual emissions associated with what you're actually pulling off the grid and you can start subtracting emissions from that inventory equal to each rec that you own. So if you have a megawatt hour if you have a wreck, this is a megawatt hour of zero carbon generation, and in your actual footprint, let's say you've got a megawatt hour of coal use, you right. can erase that coal use. Yep. And now your scope two starts going down. Okay. Now, when this system was originally conceived and when the protocol was developed, the corporate protocol was developed, the intention really was to build more wind and solar capacity, to get more built, drive down the costs. And back in the early days when there wasn't a lot of wind and solar, virtually every new wind and solar plant had a really beneficial impact on the grid because once that starts generating, by and large, it was backing out dirty generation. Right. So this brought the power of the private sector to get a lot more renewable energy built. That was good.
0: Yeah. By the way, and those became a financial tool to help Finance these projects. 100 the percent Yeah. Well, and that's
1: Absolutely. how it, you know, that's how it works. So how can I get this project built? Because back then, particularly when installar was were relatively expensive, but now right. the project developer gets to sell the electricity and sell the webs. They have these two income streams, and that helped to get a lot of projects built. It worked right. spectacularly. What we then looked at, however, is in our view, again, given how you teed this up in the beginning, which is we are not on pace to decarbonize electricity sector nearly fast enough, right? right. So we started asking the questions, okay, are we really incentivizing the right thing? So let me give you an example. Um, today, I can have a company, just imagine a company that's hooked up directly to a coal plant, okay? And they go buy Rex, and let's say they're in Ohio, okay? Then they go buy wrecks from a new, this is today, a new wind farm in West Texas. That produces a lot of wrecks. It's a great place to build wind. There's a lot of wind out there. Right, and right. they get all these wrecks. And even though their actual electricity use has not changed one width, they're still hooked up to the coal plant. Right. They get to erase all those emissions. Now, why is that a problem? Well, in this case, it's particularly a problem. It's a problem for two reasons. One, kind of the optics of it, because companies are in that situation, that company, let's say, got enough wrecks from that wind farm to offset all of its load from that coal plant. They are allowed to say under the Federal Trade Commission guidelines that they are using 100% renewable energy. Well, of course, they are not. Right. But the other problem in that... Um, is, is becoming more and more exacerbated in those more and more wind and solar being built, is that that new wind farm in West Texas actually has very little climate benefit. Because if anything, it's being curtailed. I mean, there's just too much wind all at one time, so it's not even being used. And to the extent it's displacing, displacing something, it's probably displacing other wind or maybe some solar. So the, the actual climate benefit the emissions actually avoided can be relatively small. So now yeah. so our theory is okay, actually what we really need today are not capacity builders as much as emissions reducers. But the way we the way we use RECs and the way we do scope two accounting, there is no one even asks the question. Of whether those wrecks resulted in anything good for the climate. We don't even yeah. ask the question, and it's not required. You're allowed to just assume and reduce. And what that does is it allows companies to kind of hit their even 100% renewable goal. I can't imagine a situation where a company hits a 100% renewable energy goal through some through this system and doesn't have some positive impact. Right. But it's Grossly overstated. So what we posit- And we're not is,
0: optimizing the system when it comes down to it. We're not. We're not and optimizing and the by
1: the way, by this focus on RECs, which are, have overwhelmingly been from wind and solar, we're doing nothing to address the problem I talked about at the beginning, which is we have to build, even if it means new technologies coming to market, zero emission, firm and dispatchable generation. So we get to that goal of zero carbon energy in all places and at all times. So the current system was disconnected from what the overwhelming body of literature tells us we need to do to decarbonize. And by the way, it's a little bit misleading. And by the way, we're not incentivizing companies themselves to ask the question. For example, uh, I'm gonna do, I'm going to do a, a rec, a deal with some, it could be a new project, a new wind or solar project. And I'm looking at these two different projects. One's in Texas, the one I just described. Let's say the other one's in Kentucky. That one in Kentucky is actually going to yield a lot more climate benefit because it's on a dirty grid. You put that new clean generation there. That's actually going to displace fossil generation. And from a truly climate offsetting climate perspective, yeah, that's the one we want the company to buy from. But they have no incentive to do that or yeah. there's there's nothing in how if they chose Kentucky as opposed to Texas, their scope to inventory, there's that scope to number they report would be the same. Yep. And we don't even when we say good job company through SBTR or these other recognition programs, those programs don't ask. Tell us about the emissions you actually avoided from your procurement which is right. actually what we care about, but the question is not even asked.
0: So how does this report suggest we start to ask that question? And then how does that actually, get so folks that aren't familiar, like there's a process within WRI and the greenhouse gas protocol to get these new metrics developed. You know, how does that develop? And then just a third piece of it is we're about to see a massive scale up because of the, Infrastructure uh, or the Inflation Reduction Act in more and more projects coming online just in the next two to three years. That process will take a while to happen. You know, how do we incentivize that change so that those projects coming online can really uh, meet that meet that required change?
1: Yeah. So uh, lots of could, that question. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, this could get this could get really technical, but I just try to because we think at, at, at the highest level it's just it's pretty simple and obvious, right? So. Um, the there's nothing in the protocol today that says to a company in in your when you make decisions to buy clean energy tell us what impact it had um we think that needs to change and so our entire theory is we need to start shifting to impact away from wreck accumulation yeah right now what's rewarded is accumulating wrecks irrespective of their benefit to the climate uh and let's really shift the focus and again the power of competition uh back towards actually focusing directly on reducing emissions so yes wri will undertake a process to reconsider the scope two rules and that's actually getting underway that process I was involved in the last time this happened eight, nine years ago, very, very long process. Not fast. Stakeholder consensus approach. Uh, and it worries me, frankly. Yeah. But you know we've laid out a you know, set of recommendations on how the protocol could be um, uh, improved. And let's give you one example. We say, for example, when you're putting your scope two inventory together, you can't use a rec from a project that's not on your grid. So it has to be if it's from your regional grid, and again, because the way electrons you know work, you can't trace from a one generation right to your meter, but at least in that case, you know that this procurement that the company did to help bring new clean energy online was on their regional grid and has a positive impact on, on, on the electricity system where they are using, where they are using electricity. They're low. Right. And therefore, the ability to say, look, this I'm using, it gets a little bit better. We think it's still not perfect, but better. And, and we have a whole bunch of other um, uh, disclosures that we think would be highly relevant, uh, but the first set are, how how do you improve this kind of scope to WRI accounting? rule? But then we say, we need a whole additional set of disclosures, which are in fact focused on impact. Questions about what emissions were avoided by the decisions that you made. And that either could be, or does not have to be part of the greenhouse gas protocol. It could be separate. right? Um, so yes, we're, we're pushing to see if we can kind of shift the protocol towards an impact approach. Um, but if that doesn't work, it doesn't have to be these programs, you know, a CDP or an SBTI or these other programs that truly really do impact, um, corporate decision-making themselves could add these questions and requirements. Right. The problem is that today right. those programs just by, you know, uh, just completely incorporate the greenhouse gas protocol so that they don't do any additional kind of question or analysis or they just incorporate it. But we think they, there's no reason they can't change that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, having been in the room with you and Aspen and without breaking Chatham house rules here for a second, this is not a academic process. This, the, the corporate procurers of very large organizations are actively talking about this. And looking for help to solve this because they want you know they're driven by a mission to do to do better and they just don't want that pure accounting mechanism to be what drives their decision they want real optimization as well that's that's really exciting one, one of the things that you know i mean you know the new legislation that's come out you know for folks that aren't doesn't really dive into things like scope one scope two scope three right it's about tax incentives it's about great optimization but and what it will do is really enhance uh, and and you know put the rocket fuel we need to the market to continue to grow, and those procurers, as you said, are, are, are a third of the market for the offtake. Like their demand will help shift the way we're headed. Um, you know, do you see that really coming in for you know the developers that listen, right? That are thinking about where they're putting their projects. You know, they they should be thinking this is going to something that might affect them in, but 2025. Like, you know, when do we start to see that? And then how does how do you guys think about affecting the 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 base load of clean energy that's out there today right yeah. is this do you grandfather those rocks in is it you know how do you how do you think about that
1: So oh, a couple of things i mean first I, I i really need to say that um you know the kind com- of the companies they're just following the rules they were given right you know they're not they're not saying oh let's do this you know, let's get these bogus wrecks from Texas because then we can fool the world. into th- they're not, it's just, it's the yeah. those are cheaper.
0: It's like doing an audit, they got to follow the rules. Them The
1: same points, reward points. Uh, and so they're just following. Them. Um, now there are companies that are already going above and beyond and doing what we say they should be doing. So it, it could, a number of examples, Facebook is doing this, uh, Salesforce is doing this, you know, going and actually looking to locations to develop projects that'll have the most impact, but a they're the exception, not the rule, and B it's because they've already hit all the gold stars with 100% renewable right. that that you know they can do that. But the vast majority of other companies are still kind of climbing up the mountain, according to those following the pathway they were given. Um, so it's a sub sub-optimized, a sub-optimized system. Um, so what's the you know what's what's kind of the next if we start really looking at impact? Um, And we start looking at, again, at the risk of getting a little bit too geeky here, in our proposed kind of recognition system, we ask companies to disclose a whole bunch of of different things, one of which is the the extent to which um, if they made some investment or did some procurement for firm and dispatchable zero carbon power, we think they should get a little extra credit for that. And, you know, what is that aimed at? It's certainly aimed at how do we bring some new technologies to the market, a modular nuclear plant or, you know, a new zero emission natural gas plant or, you know, something something like that. Great. Um,
0: Even a microgrid, like an actual incentivizing a microgrid, which is not, is very not incentivized right now. I mean, you can do storage, you can do solar, there's zero incentive to really do a microgrid.
1: Well, and, and before, and, you know, back to basics here, you know, the one thing that's enti- really is entirely consistent with what we would call higher impact. What we call next generation procurement it includes just putting solar panels on your roof, right? You know, as opposed to you know buying them from the other side of the, buying Rex from the other side of the country. You know, put the solar right. on the, on your facility. So, you know, that's almost you know old school um, technology at this point. Um, but but that matters too. But look at you know what's the interchange with policy here. So yes had the inflation reduction act not passed then you know we would kind of be the only game in town okay, right. a little bit of an overstatement but um, and I'm glad we're not yeah. you know we being those who are focusing on maximizing the, the, the private sector. but I, I don't think anyone should feel like well now we've passed the IRA and let's just you know fat city let's just relax and everything's going to be fine um n- no.
0: Uh, right, it doesn't. But, that it doesn't truly optimize the grid. I mean, the IRA is about in, improving things, and but, but what you're driving here is true optimization. It's like, how do you really and, maximize? And there are the other.
1: There's other policies, and, and frankly, John, I don't even know if this was part of, not part of IRA, and just part of the infrastructure bill. I'm, I'm not sure, but you know, an article today in in about a, a nuclear plant in Michigan that was about to be shut down. Uh, and there's now federal money under the nuclear extension whatever whatever program that the the utility that was going to shut that down sold it to another developer who with that federal money, is going to kind of restart it and recommission it and and get it going again and that, and that's almost a thousand megawatts of firm and dispatchable zero emission power right really right. really important now what we had been talking about and we still talk about it, but it, you know, would there be a role there for the private sector if for example like today in the private markets you know if i generate a megawatt hour from a wind farm i've got that rec which has value which i can sell to somebody but if i generate a megawatt hour of nuclear i don't have that piece of paper i don't have that additional income stream that i can sell to a company well we think that needs to change and then then maybe we'll start seeing some additional revenues coming in to um, other zero emission sources that, frankly, might need it. Right. You know, we can get into a debate. I'm not going to get into a debate about whether nuclear is part of the solution or not, because it is. And I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to waste time. I want to debate but, on that. <laughs> but there is the question of um, do that, does nuclear really need the extra money? Um, and you know, to me, it's like I, I could make the argument today and you hear you do hear this criticism. I don't entirely buy it. But from the right, the wind and wind in particular, that's a mature industry. Why do they need tax credits? Why do they need all this other stuff? You know, that's a mature industry. I, mature or not mature, I don't care. The fact is that zero emission power provides good goods and value beyond what's compensated in the market because we don't price carbon and climate change is the greatest market failure in the history of mankind. So I don't get too hung up on that. I think anybody who's producing power, zero emission deserves an extra payment, but it just so happens that the value of a megawatt hour of zero carbon energy that you control as to when it generates provides system value above and beyond the value of a wind or solar megawatt hour, which kind of happens when the wind's blowing or the sun's shining.
0: Right. Well, listen, Roger, thank you first of all for the thought, continued thought leadership on this. And you know, it's this type of work that's setting the stage for companies like Clean Capital and others to be able to, sure. you know, yep. finance and own these projects long term and, and really driving the conversation uh, by the por- corporate procurers, which will continue to, I think, help move us forward in, a, you know, regardless of the winds of change in Washington, like they're those the, the corporate world continues to drive steady here. I think that's super exciting for all of us.
1: Well, I I, I uh, remain optimistic to fight everything. And part of that's because I know there's uh, folks like you out there who are uh, actually moving money around and doing it. <laughs> <So, laughs> we're trying. We're trying. Thank you. Thank you for what you do.
0: Yeah, thank you. And thank you for, for joining us today at Experts Only. And for folks that are interested, you know, both the Green Strategies website and the Clean Air Task Force, you can get modernizing how electricity buyers account and are recognized for decarbonization impact and climate leadership. A lengthy, but very important, re- or title, but very important report. <laughs> we, we, we do event. have an
1: executive summary, if you can. not Yeah. Can't
0: do it well. <laughs> Got thank it. you, John. Roger, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you to Colin Young and your team at Green Strategies were helping to put this together. As always, you can get more episodes at cleancapital.com. Thanks. Appreciate it.